I hope you all were listening too, because this table is a profound mystery. I was joking with uh, some folks this weekend that sometimes in these children's sermons we use terms that we think are real simple terms, and the kids are like, yeah, <laughs> whatever. And so it, it's a real challenge to, uh, to wrestle with these things. And I hope that you'll wrestle with these things. And as we go to a time of prayer now, um, I want to invite you to already begin to prepare your hearts for this table. This is a significant event. It's a significant event because it says that it is a means by which God shows his grace to us. Do you know what this is? This is God's kiss to you. This is his embrace to you. It is him saying, in all of my infinite wisdom, in the profound nature of all knowledge of all things, this was the best way I could tell you how much I loved you. It was for you to come and experience my son. And there's no other way. That makes it an awesome thing. And what it also makes it is a place where broken people who mess up come to find the beauty of that embrace. Y'all look pretty good today, but you're not perfect. And this is a table for imperfect people who love an incredibly perfect God. So let's go to him now in prayer. Father, thank you for the mystery of this table. Thank you that we can't fully understand it, that it, that it goes beyond all philosophy. It goes beyond some level even all understanding. And we do pray that as we come and we worship you today, uh, that there would be a certain sobriety as we engage uh, parts of the worship service, such as this table, and that you'd prepare our hearts even now for that. God, thank you for the mystery of your love for us in the church, for Christ and what he has given to us, that he drank fully from that cup so that we never will have to. And that as he looked through it, he saw us and all the saints of all the generations and said, for the joy set before, he endured. Thank you that we're your joy. Thank you that you have tied your happiness uh, to us and that you will never fully be happy until all of the saints of all the ages have been collected and gathered together and brought home. And Father, we pray that that day would be soon to make all things right. Father, we pray for our church that as we wrestle with these truths and we want to communicate them and we want to show them and live them out, we do it as broken vessels, as clay pots with cracks, and we do it in a way that's imperfect, but we pray that we would do it in a way that does point to you. And so I pray for the leadership of our church. I pray uh, for the men and women who, who serve in those roles and functions that they would know you more profoundly today. Father, I pray for our times of worship that they would be deep and meaningful and, and they would transcend discussions of hymns and not hymns and drums and not drums and guitars and not guitars. Uh, but Father, they would transcend it that we would just be able to worship you and see you high and lifted up. And be amazed that we get invited to be in a relationship with you. Father, we pray for those in our church who are facing surgeries this week. Who have experienced the loss of loved ones. 
that they have true tears and sorrow. Thank you that you're a God who comes near to the brokenhearted. And you say, a flickering wick I will not snub out and a bruised reed I will not break. But you're incredibly delicate and gentle when you come to us. Thank you for that. Father, thank you too that you confront our sin and you are, are bold to challenge us and to lead us in the way everlasting of life itself in Christ. Father, I pray that you'd bless us today as we hear your word, as we talk about it a little bit, as we come to this table, that we'd be forever changed because we are in relationship with you. So we pray in Christ's name and to his glory. Amen. You know, we've been looking over the last several weeks together, and we're coming to an end here soon. Looking at Solomon's wisdom, really the wisdom of God through Solomon to us, through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we've been, been coming to it and wrestling with it, and it's awesome. I hope it's been challenging to you all. I hope it hasn't been too challenging that uh, it overwhelms you, but I hope it's been challenging. I want to uh, engage your mind and your heart. Too often churches uh, venture to one side or the other. We've all been in churches where they engage the mind. And there's absolutely no heart, there's no emotion, there's no energy, there's no, no understanding of those things. It's just the mind. And so you go out very educated and you know a lot of stuff, but it doesn't really impact you. And on the other side, the pendulum swings and it says, we just want to engage your heart and your emotions. We want you to feel Jesus today and we want you just to feel good about all of these things. And it's really light and it's really fluffy and all of that. What I want to do is balance both of those things. Because what we're dealing with here. Uh, are a couple of really large concepts. We're dealing with a God who is, uh, the word's called transcendent. He is over and above all things. He's everywhere at once. He is incredibly large, and we can't fully understand him. He is too much for us. And when we begin to try to contemplate him, it, it's a meltdown. There's smoke starting to come. There's circuitry, and there, there's connections that are going, I, I don't get this. I don't, I don't understand how all of this works. And it forces us to really recognize our position in the world of going, God, I don't fully understand you, but I can, I can come to trust you because I do know you, and you've made yourself known. But God, you're, you're too much for me, and that's a good thing. But the other thing that we want to wrestle with is his eminence, that he is very approachable and near, that he is present in this place right now. You do realize that, that the God of the universe is present in this place through the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts and dwelling in our midst, and he is here, and we can experience him fully in that way. So what we're trying to wrestle with a little bit as a church, and what I try to wrestle with trying to lead and to teach in that regard, is balancing those two things. I want to blow away your categories. I would love for our church uh, and people in our church to quit using uh, this little statement. God is just trying to get me out of my box. Yes, he is. And the fact of the matter is God doesn't have a box. A box is a human-created matrix that you try to figure and understand things. God is saying, I want to blow away all your categories. I want to strip you down and then build you back up. I want, to, I want you to just sit back and get on board and excited about this ride because I'm going to thrill your heart. And guess what he's going to do? He is absolutely going to move you out of your box. By the way, if you're in your little box and you're comfy in your little box, that's not a good place. Okay? My role, I've said it before, is to comfort the discomforted and to discomfort the comfortable. All right? 
So if we're just sitting back and all life is good and jolly and I got God and God's got me and things are just fine and healthy dory, you're probably not considering things enough. So we're going to wrestle with that fact, and we're going to wrestle with this God. And this week we're coming, and we're really continuing along the path of the main meaning of Ecclesiastes, we said, with the Koheleth, the the philosophy teacher, that Solomon is late in his life, and he is looking back and he is reflecting on his life. Now just a little footnote here. You don't have to wait until near the end of your life to learn something about your life. Okay, Wisdom demands that at every point along the way during your life, be it as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, as a newly married, as this, that, or the other, as a single adult, as a divorced adult, as whatever it is, it's during all of those moments and all of those times you should be constantly learning. You should be asking and wanting to grow of what's the meaning of all of these things. And Solomon looked back over his life and he said, If all there is, is life under the sun, there's no meaning at all. Everything that I've done is fruitless, and it is vanity of vanities. It is chasing after the wind, and there is absolutely nothing that profits a man. Remember we said about that word profit was the word gain. That, that you haven't gained anything. If, every, if your worldview, and some of you here may have this worldview, and I, I hope to challenge it a little bit today, that all there is is what you see. That it's just life under the sun. But the challenge there and what we've done over the course of these last few weeks is sort of systematically poke holes in it. Francis Schaeffer, who was a great thinker, uh, said that it's important as you approach a, a, a philosophy or a, a, a worldview to look for its points of tension and then try to deconstruct them. To try to deconstruct the house a little bit to say, well, have you considered this? Have you gone far enough with your thoughts? And that's not very comfortable for people because if you go far enough with your thoughts, if you go out to their ultimate conclusions, what you will find is they are incredibly unsatisfactory. And they will actually lead you where you never wanted to go. I literally had kids yelling at me at Rhodes College one time. Rhodes College is a liberal arts school in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was ministering on the campus there. And some kids were talking to me about social Darwinism and how uh, the strong are what survive, and that's a good way, that that's the philosophy that they live their life by, uh, and that that's how they just understood evolution and that we're continuing to evolve and continuing to do these things. And I looked at them and I said, okay, so you're saying this is what you believe? They said, yep, this is what we believe. I said, okay, based on your worldview, please explain to me how Hitler and Stalin were wrong. The Holocaust was horrible. Yes, I agree that it's horrible, but you proved to me based on your worldview how what he did was wrong. How Stalin killing millions of Christians was wrong. But but it just is Folks, it just is, doesn't work. It doesn't work. I want to challenge you that Hitler was incredibly wrong for what he did. Stalin was wrong for what he did. That the things that are happening socially in our world today, there are things that are wrong. And the reason that they're wrong is because there is a truth that transcends the sun. There's a truth that says, I created all life in my image, and therefore all of life, every human being has dignity, and no one should take his life. 
or her life in that way. No one has the right to destroy another people group. No one has the right to destroy somebody else in that way. Why? Because it's just wrong in a social setting? No. It's wrong because they are created in my image. And because they're in my image, they have meaning and significance in this world. And so when the scripture says, thou shalt not murder, what it's also saying is thou shalt do everything to promote the life of other people. School teachers, in a secular worldview, help me explain to a student why cheating is wrong. Because it's just wrong. You shouldn't cheat, right? That's the, that's the thing, right? Because that would be wrong. Based on whose standard? Well, the school system says it's wrong. You shouldn't cheat. You should do unto others as others do unto you. But what if I can cheat and get ahead and get an A and it won't hurt anybody else in my class? What's it going to hurt anybody for me to be the valedictorian and get a little bit more money for my family who doesn't have enough money to send me to school so that I can go to school and do some great things and become a great cancer research doctor and to finally find the cure for cancer and you're telling me I can't cheat in fifth grade in order to get there try to answer that question for me with life under the sun but if there's life above the sun God says thou shalt not lie that you should be honest and speak truth and do everything with honor and dignity and equity and those things. And the reason that you don't lie is because I've said you don't lie because I'm a God of truth and therefore I want truth in the world. Truth of best is the best thing. But you can't say that because we have to live life under the sun. Do you see where we're going with all of this? Some of you guys are just like, <laughs> like to just get to communion and move on. And, uh, but the only way this makes sense it's for it to bear to be life above the sun. The only way that it makes sense that God would come in human form and tabernacle among us, live and dwell among us, and take on wrath that we deserved was that there was some standard by which everything else is understood. That there is an ultimate God and who is going to have an ultimate judgment that all men are destined to live and then to die once and then to face judgment. That's for everybody. And so if you're going to face God, you have to be able to then figure out above the sun, how then do I get made right with God and get into heaven and be at peace with him? And he says, this is how you do it. You seek after wisdom. And not wisdom of this world, but my wisdom, which is foolishness to mankind. And my wisdom is this, that I came in the person of my son. And I dwelt among you. And you beheld my glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and that my Son suffered on a cross for you. That he took on the fullness of my wrath so that you never will. That's the wisdom that's above the Son. And that's the wisdom from which all other wisdom is derived. And that's what Solomon has been talking about here. He has been just trying to drive it home. If you want to understand justice, if you want to understand injustice, if you want to understand suffering, if you want to understand any of these things in the world of why you work or why this happens or why that happens, you have to step back and not get out of your box, but you have to totally blow through the sun and look above it to go, God, would you interpret all of these things for me? Now, what that takes is a profound sense of humility. Because what you have to say in the middle of that, a Christian should be the most humble person you ever meet. Because God is basically saying, we were just talking about this in the Sunday school, 
The only way you get to understand life above the sun is I reveal it to you. I tell you about myself. That's why we highlight the word, that we say that this word is his revealed word to us and that we can't fully understand him outside of this. That's why this is such an important part. This is why it should be such an important part for you, whatever church you go to. You may be visiting, and you may be looking around and doing a little bit of the church shopping, and that's awesome. I hope you like us. I call it the sniff test. Just give us a little sniff and see how we're doing. And and if we pass mustard, you'll come back maybe. But wherever you end up, make sure that this is honored. Because if Bill McCutcheon gets to stand above this and decide what it says, you're in deep weeds, folks. But if Bill McCutcheon has to sit under this and subordinate myself and my knowledge to this, then we're all in a much better place in that way. So knowing the word is important. And so we come, and so Solomon is challenging us on this. Last week, somebody joked with me. They said, Bill, I was asking them for open critique about my preaching, and they said, you spend too much time on the introduction and the first point, point. we never get to the latter points. So, guess what? But we have to keep establishing that because everything else flows from that. So with that in mind, we come to this now section in chapter 10, and we've jumped around a little bit, and we've got two more weeks in this, and then it's Palm Sunday, and then it's Easter, and then it's on in. Can you believe it? I mean, it is moving. Someone once said, Bill, you seem overwhelmed. I'm like, overwhelmed? I'm already working on Advent. I said, because I'm done with this series, and I'm into Palm Sunday and Easter, and then I've got to get that series done, and we've got some plans for this, and I've got to have the fall series ready, and then we've got that, and then as soon as Advent's done, guess what? Oh, gosh, I've got to be back on Palm Sunday again. It's like, whew. So we're moving, but in the whole movement of all of this stuff, we're coming and we're looking and we're saying, what do we need to learn? And chapter 10 seems sort of odd. Because right in the middle of this challenge from the philosopher, he starts to give Proverbs. It's like he slips back into some other notes on his desk. And Solomon goes, I really liked what I was saying over there in Proverbs. I think I'll add some of those in. And he jumps right in. He says, in verse 1, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no, one, no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happier are you, O land, when the king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and the money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich. 
For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or a winged creature tell the matter. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to it. And so what he is really challenging us this morning, and what we'll spend just a couple of minutes on, is this. He highlights again, know the difference between wisdom and foolishness. Are you a wise person or are you a fool? There is a way to determine the difference. You can know that. And he's giving us those things of saying, this is how a fool acts. This is how a foolish person goes about life. This is the wellspring from where it comes from. This is a fool. But wisdom is over here. And this is how a wise person looks. And this is what a wise person seeks and pursues. And his it's challenge is this. Be wise. Seek after wisdom. And you've heard the, the joke. What's the last word you hear a redneck say? Watch this. And, and I've, you just read these things and you go, that's idiotic. What were you thinking? And the reality is what? Not that they weren't thinking. They were thinking improperly. That somehow it would be incredibly smart to try to shoot a compound bow at an air, at a apple sitting on a friend's head at 30 yards in a bar. That it'd be smart. I remember growing up on the Mississippi River. It'd be really smart when the river is frozen to try to drive a Jeep across the Mississippi River and fail to realize that again, a thin ice usually does bad things when you put a Jeep on top of it. Would love to have been at that conversation with that teenager. Uh, Dad? <laughs> Jeep stuck. <laughs> Where, son? 15 feet from the Illinois side of the river in the ice. You go, what were you thinking? I don't know. That's a teenage response, isn't it? Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I've found in life? For many, many people in the church, we never grow past adolescence. Why do you hold that position that you hold? Why are you a Republican? Why are you a Democrat? Why do you believe that abortion is wrong? Why do you believe that gays should be able to be married? Why do you believe that they shouldn't? Why do you think this? Why is the death penalty right? Or why is the death penalty wrong? Why this? Why that? And you know what the the deep, profound response is so often? Hmm. Hadn't really thought about that. Solomon is going, be wise. Think through your positions. Think through what's going on in your life. Look in a mirror. He's saying, I want you to understand life. And life has this for this and for that. A quid pro quo. There is this and then there is that. There is something that happens. There is consequences. There is a relationship that goes on within life. And he begins and he says this. A little foolishness goes a long way. That's what he's first trying to say in verse 1. A little foolishness goes a long way. As dead, it's just add the as, but it's like this. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Joking, I was having breakfast with a friend recently, and another friend came up and sat down and poured a cup of coffee, and right before he took a drink, there was a cockroach hanging out in the coffee. And so I thought about rewriting this. A cockroach in a pot of coffee ruins the whole pot. It goes a long way. And 
It was just that picture of it really messes up everything. And what he's saying is this. Be careful. You could have worked your entire life for a good reputation. You could have worked your entire life to do certain things. And one stupid move of foolishness could destroy it all. Great men and women in history have been brought down because of foolish actions. It doesn't take long to think about who they are on both sides of the aisle. He's saying, be be aware that your actions have consequences and that a little foolishness goes a long way. Now, some of you parents are going, I've had that conversation before. Yeah, parents, we talk to our kids about that. But we should be talking about that at every point of life. A little foolishness goes a long way. It basically reminds us of a couple of things. It reminds us that our character has a fragrance. Our life gives off an aroma. Uh, He chose perfume for a purpose. He's basically saying, folks, you know your life reflects something. It says something about you. And people around you can get that sense. And so is the pot poisoned in that way? Is it poisoned in that way? That the main message is again, don't underestimate foolishness. It has profound impact. For some of you who are here today, here's your foolish folly. Bill, I'm not ready to deal with these things yet. I'll get to God one day. Do you think that statement has eternal consequence if your life ends today? It's just a silly little statement, isn't it? I'll get around to Jesus one day. I want to experience college. I want to experience this. I want to go and play the fool for a little while, and then I'll get serious with God later one day. Do you think that little fly could poison an entire pot? What he's saying is be aware that your decisions, even the small ones and seemingly small ones, can have absolute eternal impact. Little decisions along the way have huge impact. I've sat with so many couples in my office and they sit there before they're married and they say, Reverend McCutcheon, I know that our wedding was scheduled for a year from today, but I was wondering if we could get married in eight weeks. Oh, why? Well, we're not exactly sure how this happened, but I'm pregnant. Okay. Help me understand how that did happen. Well, it sort of started that we wanted to honor Jesus in our relationship, and we thought it's okay to honor Jesus by holding hands, and that was okay. And we thought maybe it'd be okay to honor Jesus by hugging, and that was okay. And then he was keeping little steps along. And all of a sudden, there was no guardrail. Did any one of those, were they horribly wrong? No. Just little flies that eventually led to devastating consequences. So what the teacher is trying to say is, folks, a little foolishness goes a long way. Strive for wisdom. And the other thing that he really is trying to say, and we'll, we'll shorten this, is foolishness, the rest of it, chapter, verses 2 through 20, our foolishness is a matter of the heart. 
Foolishness really springs up from the individual. It, it, it comes in, and you find foolishness at every level. As one writer put it this way, folly is a heart problem. It shows in character and conduct, is found in high places, has consequences, is especially apparent in speech and laziness, and has a dreadful effects on a nation. So to bring all of the 2 through 20 down, he's basically saying this. Foolishness is driven out of the heart. Foolishness is driven out of the heart. And so the condition of the heart has profound impact on that. And you will find foolishness everywhere. And here he says, I've seen foolishness in high places and I've seen foolishness along the side of the road. I've seen, he says, a wise man is on the right, but the fool is on the left. I'm not kidding. Some people actually try to interpret that as a political statement. Don't. It's not saying Republicans on the right are the wise ones and and Democrats on the left are not. He's saying, I'm finding them all over the place. There are fools everywhere. And the common denominator about where you find foolishness is you find it in individuals, so it's always a matter of the person's heart. It comes up from the heart. From the heart springs life. From the heart springs the words. I was challenged this week by one of my boys. He said something about... um, you know, one of his coaches said, hey, I care about how you speak because how you speak shows your heart. And I was so convicted by that of going, my goodness, I just want to throw it off sometimes as just being words. But they're not words. They're a reflection of my heart, my harshness in that way, my, my view towards alcohol, my view towards how I drive, my view towards how I love my wife, my view towards all of these things, they are driven from the condition of my heart. And the desires of my heart in that way. And so when I see these things in me, don't just repent of the action or the foolishness. Go one step further. Go down and say, what is it that's driving that? What is underlying that foolishness? Why am I holding on so much to that foolishness? God says, I want you to be wise. And then he makes this great statement. He says, my wisdom seems like foolishness to you. It's not in this passage. We said that that Ecclesiastes should be at the beginning of the Bible and explained everywhere else. What we're celebrating here today, in human terms, seems foolish, doesn't it? That the God of the universe couldn't think of a better way to redeem his people than to come down and suffer among them and take on form of a human being and live under the law that he created and suffer at the hands of the people that he created and then to experience the depths of hell itself and separation from the Father so that you never would and then rise from the dead and be seated at the right hand to come back one day glorious in all of his power. That seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? And then it seems that his wisdom is foolish because guess who he's left this message to? Me and you. As one writer put it, you can imagine Jesus ascended into heaven and the angels were around and they looked and they said, okay, what's your plan? He said, my plan is that I've entrusted the beauty of my gospel, of my message to humanity. Imagine the angels were like, you have a plan B? And he said, nope. This may seem like foolishness to you. 
But in this moment, it's absolute wisdom. There's no other way. So when you pray and you struggle with chapter 10 and you go, God, I want wisdom. How is it that I can be made right with you? He says, come to this table. Humble yourself under my mighty hand that I would lift you up. Come and repent and believe so that we could be together and you would be considered the righteousness of my son himself. So as we come to this table, let's ask the Lord's blessing as we prepare and worship. Father, thank you for the beauty of your wisdom. Forgive us for our folly, for our foolishness. Forgive us, Father, that we are arrogant enough to think that we have a better way. So as we come and we celebrate in song and we celebrate around this table, move in our hearts, we pray. To Christ be the glory. Amen. Why don't we now stand?